You are listening to a sermon from In-Town Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to listen to other sermons or find out more about the ministries and work of In-Town, please visit InTownChurch.com. Around uh, so much anymore, but in the 90s, I don't know if you remember the, the Magic Eye 3D pictures. Uh, I remember when the, the Dave Matthews band was still a college band. There's, you know, 200 other people watching them, but his first CD had this Magic Eye uh, 3D picture, and it, if you looked closely, you could see the, the peace sign underneath, and we you would look at the, we all had that disc, and so we would have races. Who could see the peace sign quickest? But I don't know why all that matters, but the point of the illustration is that the, the Magic Eye 3D is a picture within a picture. You hold it close enough, and then you, you move it away slowly, and another picture emerges. If you do it right, you get this 3D image that you couldn't see beforehand. You move from one way of seeing this page that's just a lot of uh, a cluster of a uh, constellation of colors and pixels and dots, and you move from seeing the particulars, those dots and pixels, to looking through them at a farther focus. The dots and pixels are important, of course, but only insofar as they reveal what's behind them. But to do so, what do you need? You need instructions. You need revelation. You need something to tell you what to do with those dots and pixels. You need instruction from an outside authority to understand that there, oh yes, there's actually something within this picture. So solving, solving the magic eye puzzle involves placing an implicit trust in the instructions. It means believing that the person that made this puzzle is competent to make a puzzle. You place trust in, you believe the instructions really before you have any real reason to do so. And at some point, your eyes adjust and you can see it. You can see the 3D picture, but you may not be able to describe, in fact, you can't describe at an ocular level what actually is happening. Your vision is changing, it's adjusting. But if you were asked to give a detailed explanation of what you did, you would just say, no, well, read the instructions. They're right there. You can't describe it in any more detail. But you are seeing something through instruction, through an outside authority that you wouldn't have seen other way, otherwise. Now, those who have done these puzzles in the past can do them more quickly than a novice can. And in fact, you can kind of train yourself. You can become more competent at it even though still not able to describe, what am I doing? How am I seeing this? All I'm doing is moving it, and my eyes are being trained to adjust more quickly. But I can't describe it. We can't describe in detail what we're doing to see the reality beneath the surface. Now, this is more or less the way that humans have talked about knowing, talked about epistemology. How do you know something? For all of recorded history... The human knower is finite. We're limited. And so we're dependent upon revelation, dependent upon something outside of ourselves in order to know ultimate reality, in order to have any confidence because we're finite. We don't know everything. Human history has generally said you have to have an outside authority to, to look to, to listen to. And this is, of course, a very humble Submissive posture. We're saying, I'm dependent on something outside myself in order to have any confidence in ultimate reality. Something outside that I'm not able to control is actually telling me what is true. 
Now, that was pretty much true of the way that humans thought about knowing things until the 1700s and the rise of the Enlightenment with Descartes and Francis Bacon and others that began to substitute revelation for another mediator of knowledge, and that's reason, the human reason. Now, ironically, these these thinkers were not interested in disproving the Christian faith, but using the current um, tools of modern learning and knowledge to prove God, to say that, yes, in an increasingly secular and increasingly rationalistic age, it's still okay to believe in God. But what happened when doing that, when making the, the individual, the human knower, the one who is most important, that it is through their reason that knowledge is mediated, you see some things that, some unintended, unintended consequences. Now for something to be trustworthy, it has to be known not with revelation, as we said, but with reason. So the, the 3D puzzle has to be deciphered without direction. You just have to, by your own intellect, by empiricism alone, be able to say and be able to see the puzzle. And what this does is it begins to uh, divide science and religion. And we'll talk a lot more about this next week. Has science disproved religion altogether? But what happens is you see this dividing line emerge between science, the realm of cold, hard facts that are neutral, that are uninterpreted, they're just there, and then the realm of religion, which is the realm of subjectivity. So you see objectivity versus subjectivity. That's how we began to think in the mid-1700s. And so, therefore, science begins to be divided from religion, certainly not what these initial thinkers were hoping for. And your epistemology lesson is almost over. One little school left because that's what is characterized as the modern way of thinking, the Enlightenment way of thinking. But then, in the 50s, about 60 years ago, you begin to see the rise of postmodernism. And they say, no, 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 that dichotomy is invalid. Science is not the realm of, of objectivity, and religion is not the realm of subjectivity. Both are the realm of faith and mystery and subjectivity. Religion and science have articles of faith. No one can get outside their own skin. No one can get outside their own community and look at uninterpreted facts. There's no realm of objectivity. That's the challenge that postmodernism gives to this idea that I'm just an individual knower looking at facts and I can interpret them with pure objectivity. No, 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 these guys say. Now, Paul here says that this is a matter of faith. I'm talking to you about matters of faith, but how does he talk about them? He says it's truth. Matter of faith, but it's true. Have hope in these things, believe in these things, trust in these things, but it's a matter of truth. And in fact, what he's saying is that the best and the truest knowledge will include mystery. It will include mystery because it's knowledge not simply of facts, but it's knowledge of a person. It's knowledge of a dynamic entity. So let's look at this idea of mystery from three perspectives. We see here the conception of mystery, the communication of mystery, and then we see the conclusion of mystery. There is mystery in the Christian faith. And in 3.15, he begins to draw a distinction between 
the wisdom and the ethics of the world that come purely from human reason, from within inside the closed sphere of creation. And he contrasts that with truth that comes by revelation and is embodied, yes, in an earthly place. That is the church, that is embodied in physical form, but it comes somewhere from outside. Now, he says here, the pillar and the foundation of the truth is the church. And as we looked at this passage two weeks ago, what we said was that in the ancient world and in, in neoclassical architecture today, government buildings, libraries, and such, you see these huge columns holding up what? A proclamation, an inscription, not simply of what the building is, but what the building is for, the purpose of the building. It's a proclamation of why the building is here. And what Paul is saying here is that's the church. It's the pillar and the foundation of this mystery of the faith, that the church is the mediating institution of this mystery. Now, we usually would think of mystery in terms of Sherlock Holmes, Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, that sort of thing, where you're looking for facts. You're going around trying to uncover new information and then put them in some meaningful order. And so mystery is the quantity of the unknown. It's that which you don't know. It's very informational. That's how we generally, in a modern sense, would think about mystery. But the ancient world and the Bible thinks about mystery in very different ways. It includes that. It can include a quantity of the unknown. But what the Bible primarily means when it says mystery is quality. Not quantity, but quality. Mystery is not the quantity of the unknown, but its quality. Now, to know, think about the infinitive to know in the Bible. It's often a euphemism for, for sex. And the acquisition of knowledge in this realm doesn't dissipate the mystery, but it deepens it. As you acquire knowledge of your spouse, as you acquire knowledge in that area, it doesn't make the mystery less, it makes the mystery more. Because it's dealing with quality, not quantity. You come to know your spouse, and you are ravished, and you grow in awe and wonder and love. The mystery is there. There's so much I don't know. But as we get a little bit more information, we see all the more how much we don't know. We want to explore it. We want to go after it, understand them even better. Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Very unbashful in the way that he talks about Jesus and the church. He's using this issue of sex, this issue of this is why man and woman will come together. They will become one flesh. And the, you don't understand the depths of that, the mystery of that. But I'm talking here not simply about that, but about Christ and his church, the way that Jesus relates to his church. That type of intimate knowledge, that type of mysterious relationship that when done rightly actually increases the mystery, increases the awe, increases the wonder. 
No one, when they get married, makes vows thinking that I, I exhaustively know my wife. I know everything about her, and I can indisputably prove that she returns my love. No one thinks that when they make vows. And yet, what are you doing? You're promising an unconditional promise based upon a very limited scope of knowledge. You don't have certainty at that moment. You can't say with certainty that 10 years down the road, your spouse is not going to walk away from you. You don't have certainty that they're actually who they say they are. But you have confidence because you have a prior relationship. You get, you've gotten to know that person. You have appropriate, you have proper confidence as you make those promises. How would you prove it empirically? How would you prove that your spouse does indeed love you? Is there a test that you can conceive of that would prove that indisputably? Of course not. And yet many of us build our lives around articles of faith just like that. The most secular people in this room can live by articles of faith in other people's relationship with them and an implicit trust that what they're saying is true, that what a spouse says is true. We're building our lives upon something that we absolutely cannot prove can't put it in a test tube and say, yes, it turned green, so I'm going to get married now. No, of course not. Marriage is a calculated risk. Now, one of the prominent thinkers of postmodernism is the Hungarian chemist and philosopher Michael Polanyi. And he says, this idea that truth can be known without the need for personal commitment is an illusion. This idea that knowledge can be arrived at without the need for personal commitment, without risk in the process, is an illusion. Knowledge is impossible without risk, and it can't begin without an act of trust, Polanyi says. Knowledge begins, the Christian faith would agree with, knowledge begins with faith, with trust, with risk, not with indisputable proof, not with absolute certainty. In this kind of knowing, you're not in control. You're submissive again, just like the ancients thought about knowledge. In the Christian faith, you are submissive. You're not in control. You're relating to not a set of facts and propositions, but you're relating to a person, a dynamic, a dynamic individual who not only receives your questions but has questions for you, who not only receives your demands but has demands upon you. You see, knowledge in that realm is a great risk. You can't have certainty because God has questions of you. You don't know what's going to happen in this relationship, but you enter in with confidence, not certainty. Now, we all know that you can talk about people when they're not present in a much different way than you can when they're there, right? I mean, not even just in a gossip sense, gossiping way. But you talk about people differently when they're not in the room than when they come into the room. But that theoretical person that we're referring to, if they come into the room, the conversation changes drastically. Changes drastically. And this is what Christianity has claimed, is that God has come into the room. That he's not this distant, remote person, a set of facts, a set of propositions to be believed, but he is a person, a loving person kind God who has walked into the room, who's walked into our conversation. And therefore, we can't talk about him in some distant, disembodied way. We have to talk about him as he is, in the way that he has revealed himself, in the way that he's told us 
to talk about him. You can't talk about, you can't relate to a person in any way other than the way that they will allow you, other than the way that they will reveal themselves to you. Same way with God. He's walked into the room. What the gospel says is that God has taken on flesh and he has walked into the world. He has stepped into our world, not in the form of ones and zeros, not in the form of data to be dissected, but in a real body, in a real life as a person who can only be known in relationship. And you see, that's what Paul is pointing to. He said, this is the mystery. This is the mystery. It's great. What is the mystery? Well, he answers his own question. This mystery of godliness is great. He gives us a hymn about Jesus. He gives us an ancient hymn about the incarnation of Jesus. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among nations, was believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. He is summarizing for us the basic mystery of Christianity, that God has stepped into our world in the person of Jesus. That's the mystery. That's the great mystery of the faith, is Jesus and his incarnation, and that God is at work reconciling the whole world through the life of one person, through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of one person. That's the mystery. If you're wondering what it is, that's it, Paul says. That's the consummation of the mystery. But then, what's the communication of the mystery? How does he get that mystery across? Well, first of all, he says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great in verse 16. You see what he's saying? I understand. This is hard to believe. This is difficult stuff. He's saying, but beyond all question, in the Greek, basically means confessedly, admittedly. Yes, you're right. This mystery is great. It's as if he's answering questions from people around him or people in the church that are saying, Paul, is is this what you're really saying? Are you really wanting us to believe that this person that lived just 40 years ago is that all of the world's wisdom is gathered up into him? That he is the one that's reconciling the whole world? Paul, is this what you're really saying? Is this what you're arguing? Are we going to give our lives to something that cannot be empirically proven? Are you serious? Paul says, I admit, there's great mystery. There's great difficulty. And he says, the mystery of godliness. Now, what does that mean? Some of the translations have the mystery of religion. That is, the word conveys the the totality of the right response to God. Not just simply intellectual assent. Not just saying, yes, I agree with your proposition. But it's the response of head and heart. It's the response of all of life. The mystery of godliness is great. Now, the implication here is that he is drawing together, he is seeming together two things that in modern thought have been severed greatly, and that is head and heart. In modern thought, the the knower is detached from knowledge. The knowledge is out there, it's objective, and you simply have to interpret it. You simply have to assign it value. But you can be a neutral observer interpreting bare facts. And postmodernism challenges this whole idea. No, no, no. And Polanyi, who we refer to, Foucault, Derrida are saying, this whole idea is false. There's no such thing as pure objectivity. We all have biases. We all have prejudices. 
We all have assumptions. And we all inhabit communities that influence not only what questions we ask, but what conclusions we can come to. We're not disembodied people. We live in community. We have biases. And Christianity can't deny the subjective elements of the faith. Certainly not at all. But neither can science or any other discipline. All efforts to know must begin with some given, with some presumption. And what Christianity does is it begins with Jesus. It begins with the mystery. It begins with the incarnation. That's our bias. That's our given. That's our presupposition, is Jesus. In your bulletin, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is quoted as saying, faith alone is what? Is certainty. Everything but faith is subject to doubt. Jesus Christ alone is the certainty of faith. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. How circular is that, Dietrich? <laughs> you're, you're, you're setting out, you're claiming as a given that which we want you to prove. But you see that argument has a boatload of assumptions in it. Calling Bonhoeffer to make a defense in that sort presumes that you know what proof is. It presumes that you know what certainty is. It presumes that God needs to be defended, that God will submit to your questions. Do you see the most rational response to that statement is itself full of presuppositions. All of us, Bonhoeffer is saying, is finite, are finite. All of us, none of us have exhaustive knowledge. And in order to know something with absolutely pure certainty, you have to know everything all at once. Now, what we as Christians will say is that I don't know everything. I am finite. I am limited in my perspective. But what the gospel says is that I know the one human who's ever lived that does know everything, that can totalize an idea, that can say everything about everything at once because he knows all. And that's where confidence comes in. It's not in my rational ability to understand the facts. It's that we are trusting a relationship. We are trusting someone who we believe loves us, and we trust that what they say is true. Christ alone is the certainty of faith. Christ alone is the certainty of truth. Now, what does this mean, practically speaking? A short aside on how we sort of do the business of church with this understanding of how you come to knowledge. If we believe that only God is infinite, that only God can totalize an idea, only God knows everything about everything all at once, then all of our understanding, because we are finite and limited, is open to further development. The problem with the church historically, and we talked about this two weeks ago, is that we believe way too much, way too uh, many things too much. We believe way too many things too much. And therefore, in modern Christianity, really back into the Reformation, you see this splintering. And it's a sad state of affairs because we've divided over less and less and less important things. Now imagine for, with me, if you will, a cone or a, a triangle. And what we'll call it is the, the cone of certainty. And it has three tiers. And in the top tier is those things that are, are most important. Those things that have always been claimed 
uh, by Christianity since the very beginning. These are the things that we are most certain about, that we are willing to die for, that we will fall on our sword to, to claim that this is true. And then in the second tier, it's slightly less important. The third tier is less important. But what modern Christianity has done, unfortunately, is we've crammed everything into that top triangle and that we're willing to die for everything. We're willing to split and divide over everything. In fact, the triangle could be inverted to where the top tier is now the broadest. And these are the things that are absolutely most important that we will die for, that we'll split over. And it's a sad sort of thing. We have too many convictions at the top of the cone of certainty, even though we say that we believe a faith that has a mystery at the center, that we believe that we're limited and finite. And what this would mean is that lowering convictions is just as important in raising them. Now, how do we do that? How do we as a church begin to do that? Well, if we agree, and I think it's true, that all knowledge is formed in community, you do this in community. You assign value to things. You assign weight. You put them in the right tier. You fall on your sword over the right doctrines by looking at the church, by looking, doing that in community, both present community, both within the lines of your faith tradition. Here at InTown, it's Reformed Presbyterianism, and that's important. We believe those things to be the best summary of the Bible, okay? And we look at our questions through the lens of Reformed Presbyterianism. But then we also must look historical community. We must ask, what does the church always believe for all time, and what value did it assign it? This, something, this thing that I may look at and be, it be of great importance to me, but then I look at the whole church altogether, and it hasn't really assigned it much value. Well, that should be a check, a chastening on my subject, subjectivity. What does the church believe for all time? And this is why we recite these ancient creeds each and every week here at InTown, because what we're saying is that, yes, we are a confessedly Presbyterian church that believes in our doctrinal system. But at the same time, what we're saying takes of greater importance is those things that all Christians everywhere believe. Those things that are put into these ecumenical creeds in the very first centuries of Christianity. And so our private judgments, our private individual readings of Scripture are put underneath a robust understanding of the way that the church has interpreted the issue and the weight that it has given it. We live in community with the present and historical church. The very center of our faith is a mystery, and therefore there should be assumed to be things in Scripture that we can't get our minds around, that are knowable but yet incomprehensible in totality, such as Jesus' humanity and divinity. The problem of evil is one of these mysteries. How can God be good and all-powerful, and yet we see such hatred and chaos in many places in our world? How is God claimed to be sovereign over all the world, and yet he calls on each of us to make responsible choices and respond to the gospel? It's inscrutable. There is an inscrutable connection, an agreement between those things, a logical compatibility that we don't have access to, but we trust that God does, that he hasn't revealed everything about everything, that the Bible is sufficient 
for life and godliness. But it's not everything that has ever been written and every, every, every truth. It's okay for us sometimes to say, I don't know. I can't reconcile those things, but I trust them because I know that Jesus is good. I can't put them together and describe logically how God is sovereign and yet I'm held responsible for my actions. I can't do that for you, but I trust that that's what Scripture teaches. And I trust that because of that, and because I know that God is good, that's true, and I can hold on to that, even if I can't describe to you in detail how that interrelates. It's the very same thing with the illustration earlier. I can't describe exactly what's happening as I'm interpreting this puzzle, but I see it happening, and I trust that it just happened. In one sense, it could be like what, what we would encounter if we heard something about our spouse, something puzzling, something troubling about their behavior. And before we get all the facts, before we know everything about the situation, what do we say? We say, I don't, I don't know yet how I can reconcile that with who I know them to be and their past behavior. It's puzzling. It's maybe even troubling. But I trust them, and I trust the vows that they have made to me and I trust them in who they are as a person. I can't reconcile that yet, but I trust them. It's the very same thing. At the center of God's communication is a mystery. We talked about the conception of the mystery. We've talked about the communication of the mystery. Now let's look briefly just at the conclusion of the mystery. The mystery of the faith, Paul says, is Jesus. It's his incarnation that God came into the world. That's the most mysterious thing about Christianity, and it's the most unique. It's the most befuddling, but it's the most beautiful. It's hard to understand why God would choose to do it that way, but the more we explore it, the more you understand it, the more you say, wow, I'm in awe. Of course it works like that. The mystery is that he came into the world. We don't work up, but he comes down. It's the mystery of grace. It's the mystery that God enters into our world, not simply with demands, but with love, and says, I am willing to forgive you of all of your sin and rebellion. That's the mystery of grace. And if you're a Christian here this morning, what the way that God looks at you is he sees you as both a sinner and a saint that you are absolutely perfected and holy in God's sight, and yet at the same time, he sees every little thing you've ever done. And in one way, he says, I see you, I know you. And then another way, he says, your sin is put away as far as the east is from the west. How does that go together? How are those two things reconciled? You right now, in in the seat you're sitting in, if you're a Christian, are a mystery. You are a saint fully perfected, able to stand before God, and yet on the other hand, you're dreadfully sinful and helpless and needy. And the way those two things come together is in Jesus, that both God's perfect justice is answered and his perfect grace is dispensed. And when he looks at you, if you're a Christian, he sees not all of your sin, but he sees Jesus as if you had done everything that Jesus ever did and never done anything wrong. That's how he sees you. And yet at the same time, I look at myself and I say, 
Really? Is God going to admit me into his presence again? I've done this again. We are sinners and saints if we are Christians. And it's not because of what you do for him that he allows you into his presence, but it's because of what he has done for you. Not because you are lovely, but because he is loving. He loves you, embraces you. He runs to your aid. That's not a puzzle to be solved. It's not simply a proposition to be believed, but it's something to explore. It's something to stand in awe of. It's something to experience. Each week we come to confession, just as Steve let us in earlier. And this is exactly what we are doing. We are confessing that we believe that this is true, that Jesus lived in a person, as a person, that he died on behalf of his people. And therefore, you can be set free of all your sin and live with him eternally. We believe that proposition to be true with great confidence. But on the other hand, what confession is doing is not simply saying, believe this again, but experience it again. Be renewed in your grasp of it. Be renewed in your head and your heart. We are expanding the boundaries of what we believe his grace to be. And each and every week, if we do it rightly, if we do it well as a church, we see those boundaries of his love and what's possible in the gospel expanding ever farther outward. Because we see, okay, last week he forgave me. Is he going to this week? Look what I've done. Look who I've been this week. Look what I've failed to do. And we come to confession and we're reminded again. We experience that grace yet again. And the boundaries of his love in our mind go out a step further. That's what confession does. That's the mystery is that, yes, you can come again. Yes, because Jesus was incarnate, because he made everything right for you, you can come again. We confess deeply and truly, and therefore we see the gospel more fully. We see the love of Christ ever expanding, and we only explore we only experience grace to the, to the extent that we explore and experience our own sin and our personal failure. To the extent that we see our own sin, to that same extent we see the depth and the mercy, the depth of the mercy of Jesus. We only see his beauty by seeing our own ugliness. As we come in a moment to this table, this mysterious table, the greatest mystery here is not the long-standing argument over what happens with the elements. Do they become really wine, or is Jesus spiritually present, or is he in, with, and under? There's been all of these debates about the mysterious presence of Jesus at the table. But here's the real mystery, is that here's a God who won't be conjured up by your code of conduct. He won't be impressed by how good you've been this week. He won't be brought down because you've stood up. He comes down, we don't go up. He comes down and he's in, embodied, his gospel is embodied in a person. He is a God who comes down and says, my life for yours. And if you believe that, that's the only requirement for coming, is saying, I need your life so that mine can be made right, so that I can be in union with you. That's the mystery. It's not, it's not quantity, but it's quality. The quality of the gospel, the quality of God, the quality of the incarnation, 
the quality of a relationship with a God who doesn't require you to come up, but he comes down to you and says, my life for yours. If that's our mystery, then there's so much to explore. There's so much to experience. And if we come to this table and partake rightly, there should be awe and wonder and joy and a surprise yet again. Look what Jesus has done for me. That's what happens when we come to the table. Let's pray that as we lead this time, that we would not simply know more about God, about his gospel, about Jesus, but that we would be awed, that we'd be amazed, that we'd be wondered, that we'd be even perplexed by how mysterious this is, and yet confess it with great confidence that Jesus has come, and he has died for me, and he will come again to redeem his church and redeem the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the deep things of truth, the deep things of your word. And, Father, there are so many things that that are befuddling, that are difficult. But, Lord, let us have confidence nonetheless as we wrestle with those things, as we wrestle with mystery. I pray that you would give us confidence, that you would give us the certainty of faith that Jesus came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, and yet does it gladly and welcomes us into fellowship with you. And we pray in his name. Amen.